Good morning again. It's uh, a special privilege of ours to be here with you once again. Uh, this one was scheduled some months back, but the previous two were not scheduled, but in God's economy, they all three were scheduled, and we treasure each of the three times we've been able to come back and to assist Pastor Zach as well as the Grace Chapel family. You are a very special treat for sore eyes. We love each of you very, very much and appreciate the time that we had here with you. And for all those that are watching online at home, again, my very special message to you as well. When we uh, went into this ministry, we felt that this would be an opportunity in our autumn years of life to be able to give back into churches, but we also felt that this would be an opportunity for God to enrich our lives by meeting special saints that would assist us in growing and continuing to expand in our growth. And we have definitely not been disappointed. Our first leg of journey was in Frankenmuth. Uh, we were able to stay in our condo and travel back and forth, but those people have just done so well, and we appreciated how much they helped. I referred to myself as the rookie, and uh, they were uh, very, very kind and gracious to us. And then God led us to the celestial city of uh, West Liberty, and uh, you know, Lafon and I were coming, and we've, we've made this trip, you know, dozens and dozens of times over the years, and um, even yesterday when we come in and you get uh, to the point when the hills began to roll and so forth, and I commented to Lafon, I said, this really is a very beautiful area to live, so uh, you are blessed to be able to, to live here, and you're also blessed to have this church family and to have Pastor Zach here, a man who... Uh, really delivers the word, lives it out, and uh, we are just so very happy for you. Uh, just very briefly, uh, we will be uh, beginning our third leg in the journey, uh, the beginning of February, the Lord willing, uh, in southern New Jersey. Now, I'm not quite sure how uh, a southern hillbilly is going to fit uh, there, so you might want to pray for them more than me. Uh, but we're looking forward to that, and uh, if you do not receive our newsletter and would like to, to receive it next month, we'll have all the details about that church and how best to pray for, for us. And I'm sure that there are saints there like you that will enrich our lives as well. Well, this is a very special time of year. Uh, I've got my Christmas tie on. We have Christmas decorations around. And you know, it wouldn't be Christmas if you didn't sing Joy to the World at least several times, caroling, driving in the car, listening to the radio, even by yourself in the shower, singing Joy to the World. It's a, it's a great song. Uh, you could sing it in July. It would have just as much truth. This song was actually written by Isaac Watts, who composed over 600 hymns. And if you don't know him, I know you know the songs that he has written. For example, when you have communion, you may have sung, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, written by him. Or perhaps uh, at the beginning of a worship service, the call to worship, O oh God, our help in ages past. Or at Easter time, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, are some of the songs that he wrote in addition to joy uh, to the world. How this all came about is a very fascinating story. You know, 18-year-olds know everything. And then they go to college and they learn more, and as life goes on, then they realize that, like myself, you don't really know as much as you think you do at 18. And so Isaac Watts complained to his dad about the dreadful music in the church. It was like a funeral dirge. And so his father said to Isaac, he said, well, if you're not happy with the music, why don't you write something better? And that's what he did. For 220 Sundays in a row, from age 18 to age 22, 
220 Sundays in a row, he wrote a new hymn. Now, I'd like to tell you that it went over fantastic and he became the next Michael W. Smith on the radio. But because he lived in the late 1600s, that's not what happened and it wasn't received very well. In fact, he was criticized because they were not worshipful. They were contemporary music. Uh, people referred to his songs as whims, not hymns. So he took it on the chin pretty good, but today these songs are sung with great popularity. The passage of Scripture we read earlier, uh, Psalm 98, is the basis for him writing Joy to the World. The music was added years later by a man named Lowell Mason. He was influenced greatly by Handel's Messiah. In fact, one of the songs, Lift Up Your Heads, has the exact same four notes that starts Joy to the World. Now, Joy to the World is not your typical Christmas song because there's no reference to Mary, no reference to the baby Jesus, there's no magi, there's no shepherds, there's no Joseph, no angels, none of that. It's based really on his reign over the world to come, the future kingdom. If we could extract one verse, we might say it would attach itself to the first coming, the birth of Christ. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. The very first stanza, and we'll be singing this at the conclusion of the message, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. And then that's repeated several times. Now, if in your Bibles this morning, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Philippians. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning, specifically verses 5 through 11. Verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When I went to the Moody Bible Institute many, many moons ago in 1971, we would have chapel every single day in the Tory Gray Auditorium. Those were two former presidents of the Institute. And the Tory Gray Auditorium is big. It would hold probably about 1,800 people. And it has a humongous pipe organ. If I could just digress for a moment, you guys really are wonderful singers. And uh, it's been our privilege to be up here and to listen to you sing. But I have to say there's one place that outstands even this place, and that's there. Every year when they had the Moody Pastors Conference, and I would attend that, they would always end the conference with the same song, the Lord's Prayer, and they would get that pipe organ going, and you got 15, 1,600 pastors singing the Lord's Prayer, and it just keeps building and building and building every single time I would just feel tingles down the back of my spine. Just awesome. Just a foretaste, literally, of glory divine. But coming back to the Tory Gray Auditorium, as a student, these words were etched across the front of that pipe organ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, which would be the King James translation. The New Living Translation reads, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. The NIV, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then finally, J.B. Phillips, let Christ Jesus be your example as to what your attitude should be. In just a moment, I'm going to read the first four verses which prepare the way for understanding why Paul wrote verses 5 through 11. Because Paul is trying to develop in these dear folks the mindset of Christ to be a servant to one another. The word mind that is used in the King James translation 
is described like this in Vine's dictionary. And I think this is very helpful in preparation to reading these first four verses. It says, to have an opinion of oneself, to think of oneself, to be modest, not to let one's opinion, though just, of himself, exceed the bounds of modesty. So to have the mind of Christ is to understand who you are in relation to others. And with that, let me read verses 1 through 4, and then we will pray. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then when you come to verse 5, and as my mind goes back those 49 years to let this mind be in you as it was in Christ Jesus, then I understand, and I hope you understand, that is to have the mind of Christ, which was a servant on our behalf. Let us pray. Father, we come to your word this morning and ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate knowledge-wise what this passage means, the magnitude of our Savior stepping down from glory into humanity and suffering and then rising from the dead and being placed at the right hand of our Father. Help us, Lord, to capture the example, the pattern of joy that is set for us in Christ Jesus. And Father, I specifically pray for those two words that are yours. Paul wanted each of us, not just the Philippians, but each of us to possess the mind of Christ. Help us to do that so that we can be your servants for the King. In his name we pray. Amen. There's two verses that come to my mind when I think of the entirety of this portion of Scripture, verses 6 through 11. Mark has already read the passage, and we'll be going step by step through this passage, so I won't read that entire passage uh, connected together. But these two verses come to mind to kind of describe in a miniature form or brief form what has taken place in this portion of Scripture. And the first one is this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That explains coming from glory down into humanity or incarnation. The second verse takes it from incarnation and then back to glory. And that passage is Hebrews 12:2, Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy. Now, you'll notice the, the title of my message is The Pattern of Joy, Our Pattern for Joy. The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy is the settled conviction that God is in control for my good and for his glory. And as we look at the example of Jesus coming from glory down into humanity and suffering upon the cross and then going back to glory, we can see in his life why it was a joy set before him. Now, he was God, and he knew exactly what was going to happen. We are not, and we don't know what will happen the next hour, the next day, the next month, the next year, the rest of our life. But we do know that joy is the settled conviction that God is in control for my good and for his glory. 
Now on the screen, and I'm going to try to uh, assist here just a little bit by pointing out, I, I came across this chart that basically describes for us this particular passage, the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. And that basically is the two major points of this passage. But I want you to notice this here is shaped in a U. Some will describe this like more in a, um, a V shape. But it begins with the pre-incarnate glory of Christ. And then he came down into humanity. That's incarnation. He lived his earthly life. And then he suffered on the cross, died for sins. Then he was resurrected. Then he ascended. Then he's seated at the Father's right hand. He will return again. And, and, and I'll just pause here. Psalm 98 really is talking about his future reign. And then, of course, it ends with the eternal glory. Now, the reason I have this here is that that chart literally describes verses 6 through 11 in a visual form. So now let's do it in a verbal form. In C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, he writes the following. In the Christmas story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, but he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. Why is it that this is so important? When we're born into Adam's race, we think a whole lot of ourselves. And then we meet Jesus, and we realize we're nothing, absolutely nothing without him. And as we take on the mind of Christ, we are able to one day, not in this life, but in the next life, receive the glory that he set before us. John wrote this about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt literally means to tabernacle. He pitched his tent. Paul refers to the body as a tent in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, you're looking at the vehicle. Uh, my name is Randy Jenkins. I, I'm a minister of the gospel. Uh, I, I live in Cairo, Michigan, but I am currently standing here behind the pulpit in West Liberty, Ohio. Yesterday we drove down after the service. We're going to drive down to southeast Ohio tomorrow over into Kentucky to see LaFon's mother, and then we're going to go back. What's going to happen is Randy Jenkins' this body is going to get transported during that process. But the real me is inside of me. Jesus came and pitched his tent as one of us. And as he traveled and he went eventually to the cross, he also went back to the glory that he left when he came to earth to begin with. Verse 5 through 8 is the example of humility or the incarnation. And it comes in four different steps. And let me give you those four steps and then we'll come back and look at each one of them. His relinquishment, the role he took, the resemblance that he had, and then finally the resignation that he took on earth. Verse 6 says, Who though he was born in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now we have to get a little bit greeky here in order to understand this verse and then also to understand the contrast that's going to come up a little later in the passage. Probably all of you have heard of these two words, even in our English language, the word morph, a metamorphosis, uh, transformers, more than meets the eyes. I'm sure that you remember those, those toys. The word morph is in there. And the word morph is the inside in essential who you are. It never changes. Now, on the other hand, the word form is used later in the passage, and it's the word schema. We might uh, refer to a schematic or a scheme. That's the word here, and that's the outward 
and that changes from time to time. Perhaps a, a quote here will help in understanding because here in verse 6, he uses the morph of God or morphe of God. The essential morphe of any human being is humanity, and this never changes. I'll always be a human. You will always be a human. God created you that way. You will always be that way. But the outward part changes. If I threw up on the screen baby pictures, and then first grade picture, and then my graduation picture, and then wedding pictures, and then pictures that came out of pictorials of churches that I've served, and then I threw the picture on the screen of today, it would all be human, morphe, but the outward part would change. And that's the word we'll come to in just a moment. When Jesus came to earth, he was the morphe of God. He was in the form of God, but he did not clench to this and its rights that came with it independently. He yielded always to the Father. And I'll give you a couple examples of that in just a moment. When it says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, with God, and the Word was God, he's talking about the eternal morphe of Jesus Christ, our Savior, being always God. Just last week, in fact, I believe the last two weeks, your pastor has been expounding on Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. If I could just borrow one phrase, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the morphe of God. But he didn't grasp this, this equality with God, or seize it and hold on to it he yielded himself to our Heavenly Father. John MacArthur writes this, he refused to selfishly cling to his favored position. Now let me just make a little bit of a application here. When we read verses 1 through 4, what Paul is getting at is I want my joy to be your joy by serving others. If I could just point out a few things here, going back to verse 27 of chapter 1, and then we'll come back to John's quote. In verse 27, going over to chapter 2, verse 4, I put these verses together. They're different chapters, but originally there were no verses or chapters. In verse 27, he's saying, make sure that you stand together for the gospel. In verses 28 to 30, stand tough for the gospel against opposition. Then you come to verses 1 through 4, the theme is still the same. In order for the gospel to go forth, in order for the Great Commission to work, God's saints have to work together. We have to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. So, Jesus did not, according to the words that John writes here, John MacArthur, he refused to selfishly cling to his favored position as the divine son of God. Now, if Jesus could do that, then why can't we do that by his power? Even if we have a favored position, why do we have to cling to it and be showy or strong or trying to uh, overpower others, Paul is saying, let the mind of Christ be in you as was in Jesus Christ. John goes on to say he didn't view it as a prized possession to be used for himself. If all we did was just that one sentence that John MacArthur wrote, it really captures the essence of verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Don't cling to your positions. Serve one another because of the gospel. 
Two examples from the life of Christ, I think, illustrate among many examples. The first is the temptation of Christ, Matthew chapter 4. Three different times Satan tempted Jesus, and each time he refused to go for the bait. Satan offered him a lot, the kingdoms of the world. But because he had yielded himself to the Father, he was able to relinquish that right that he had in order to stay true to the mission that God had called for him. We see that on the tail end of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's uh, an old song that, that uh, I sung growing up uh, down in southeastern Ohio that had the reference of this. But Jesus made reference that he could call ten, 12 legions of angels. That's about 72,000 angels. One angel would be enough, but that many angels. He could have got out of that mess. Just because they had swords and just because they were able to seize him and just because he had somebody betray him, that didn't mean anything. He could have called these angels and boom, he would have been rescued. Why didn't he do that? Because he did not seize the independent use of his authority. He always followed the Father's lead. Now the role that he took in verse 7, verse A, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Now we'll get to this uh, word form in just a moment. But this is what we call the kenosis. Kenosis literally means to make null or to yield the prerogatives and the privileges that one would have. He emptied himself. He gave up the independent use of his attributes. You know, if you study the Gospels, you see a lot of miracles. People receiving their sight, people being healed of diseases, invalids rising up and walking again. Someone with that kind of power, why, why didn't he just do that for everybody? Because each and every one of those miracles were signs. They were pointing to something greater, and every single one of them were done specifically in the Father's will. See, he was still the morphe in the form of God. He was deity, but he yielded that right so that he could take on the form schema of a bond slave. Now, a servant has no rights. He doesn't own anything, nothing. That's what Jesus did. You know, probably a case could be made that all churches that IPM sends its pastors into are centered around grasping of rights. Whether it's a pastor misusing his rights or people in the congregation abusing their rights, you could make a case that it really comes down to the struggle as humans of wanting our way. Jesus came as a servant. We read this in Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you heard me say this while I was here as an interim pastor. Surveys have shown that most people, when they come to a church, they'll walk out and they'll say to their spouse, well, did you get anything out of the service? That's a consumer mentality. The right way would be, what did I give to the service? Do you realize right where you're at, you can be praying? Praying for the pastor as he preaches. You can be praying for somebody that you see that is in, in real need. You can be following along, reading the, the, the word and giving and contributing. Instead of coming in and being entertained, you come in and become edified so that you can give and be a servant for others. 
One person said this very well. Christ veiled his deity, but he did not void his glory. In other words, he was still in the form, the morphe of God, but he took on the schema, the form of a servant in order to save lost humanity. In one of the commentaries I picked up it had a really good illustration uh, given by Brian Chappell, and it's a story about a missionary in a particular part of Africa. And in this particular part of Africa, the person who became the chief was always the strongest physically in that tribe. Well, they had a well in which you literally had to step your way down. It had little, little steps that you would step your way down into the well, and then you would draw water. And a man one day was drawing water out of that well for the community, and as he was going down, he fell, and when he hit the bottom, he broke his leg. He could not help himself out of the well. How can he get out? Nobody had the ability. Well, the chief, being the strongest person, always wore a robe, always wore a headdress, in order to symbolize he was the chief. He volunteered as the strongest person to go down. He took off the headdress. He took off the robe. He climbed down into the well, and as the only person who could lift this man and physically carry him up out of the well, he did that for this man and saved him. Now let me ask a question. When he took the headdress off, when he took the robe off, did he cease to be chief? No. He was still the chief. But he submitted himself in order to go down and to save that person. He did what no other person could do. Jesus did what no other could do, come down into the deep well of depravity of the human race and lift us out of the abyss of sin. Wonderful illustration. The third aspect of this passage speaks of the resemblance. Being born, verse 7 into verse 8, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Likeness is it's similar to something in appearance, but not really. He's in human form or schema, which is a changing outward experience. As I said earlier, uh, the outward appearance of us always changes. Uh, Jesus, when he was born, did not have a beard. Jesus, when he was a baby, did not work in the carpenter shop. Uh, Jesus grew and developed like all other men. And the Bible tells us that he was in the likeness of men. And this is carefully guarded in the terminology, both explicit and implicit. So let me share a few of those. In Matthew 1.16, we read, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is the Christ. In the original language, that's in the feminine, of whom. So what's that reference? That reference is Mary. That's a carefully guarded reference to the virgin birth of Jesus. Jesus' father was not Joseph. His mother was Mary. Another passage is Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. See how carefully that's worded. He was in the similarity of sinful flesh, but he was not sinful. And then finally, Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, carefully distinguishing the fact that he was not born of a human father. His role was that of a servant in the likeness of human flesh. And finally, the resignation. And this really, for anyone here that does not know Jesus as their Savior, please listen to this. When Jesus came to earth, he came on a mission, and he knew what that mission was. It wasn't like these things happened. He knew ahead. Remember that passage in uh, Hebrews? For the joy set before him. He also knew the suffering set before him. That's why he prayed so fervently in the garden, not my will but yours be done. It says here in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He voluntarily laid down his life. He himself said this in his earthly ministry, no one takes it from me. And you know, he's sitting there thinking, well, I thought the Roman government seized him. I, I thought the Sanhedrin, I thought the Pharisees and the Herodians and, and that bunch, I thought they was the one that did it. No. He says, I lay down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. He did all this because he was yielded to the Father's will. Crucifixion is a terrible experience. It was invented by the Persians and the Phoenicians, and then it was carefully crafted by the Romans to draw out the most suffering. It was used on slaves. It was used on the worst of criminals, Jesus was hung with two criminals on each side of him and enemies. When enemies were conquered, a lot of times they would have a long row of crosses where they would come in with their victory march and they would just have a a long row of people that had been conquered suffering on the cross to emphasize we are the victors. So crucifixion was held for the lowest scum of society. They were scourged, they were beaten, they were mocked, humiliated by being stripped. Jesus didn't last this long, but in some cases they would last for three days suffering on the cross. And the way you die is by asphyxiation. You know, this um, virus, for those that have been affected the greatest, it, it affects the breathing. And the ability to not breathe is very similar to drowning. You just can't get air. And that's how you die. In addition to all the suffering. Frederick Farrar gives this concise description, I mean, very concise, when you look at the magnitude of all that takes place, he says this, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly, dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, fever, public shame, long torment, horror of anticipation, stopping just short to the sufferer, the relief of unconsciousness, the unnatural position made every movement painful, the lacerated veins and the crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. Jesus, from glory, stepped into humanity, took in likeness of human flesh the form of a servant, and 
yielded, humbled himself to the point of the lowest criminal, a slave, an enemy, to die like that. The prophet Isaiah describes it like this. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Let me just pause right there before continuing the passage. What Frederick Farrar described is the physical. What Isaiah is describing is the spiritual. Why did he do it? Why did he fulfill this prophecy? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This kenosis, this emptying of himself. This yielding of independent rights is the pattern for each of us. And in return for that pattern, we have joy in this life knowing that it's for our good and for God's glory. The passage goes on, verse 9, 10, and 11, the exaltation after the humility, returning to glory. Verse 9 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore is all that we've talked about to this point. It connects the suffering, then the glory. You can go all through the scriptures, and that is the pattern. It's always first the suffering, then the glory. Suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. Always that pattern. To have the joy of the Lord, we have to understand that. In this life, we have suffering. But in the next, we have glory. Jesus came to set the pattern so that we would be servants for him. In verse 9, it says that he is highly exalted. This is the restoration. You see, this is not his first rodeo. His rodeo has always been that he's in the morphe of God, but he had this segment of life where he left the glory, and it's a restoration. Again, borrowing from John MacArthur, he says, for the most part, Jesus' exaltation involved a restoration of what he had eternally possessed before his incarnation. When Jesus prayed the real Lord's Prayer, the real Lord's Prayer is John 17. What we call the Lord's Prayer is really a disciple's prayer, Matthew 6. But the real Lord's Prayer, John 17, he prayed this, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The passage that was preached the last two Sundays would connect very well with a portion I'm going to read from the book of Hebrews. I'm going to emphasize all seven, but there are seven examples of the superiority of Jesus overall. He begins this book by saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But the last days he has spoken to us by his Son. I want to read that again. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Right now, he is speaking to us, 
to have the mind of Christ, and it can be yours. When Jesus returned to glory, we read these seven things. He's heir of all things, one, created the world, radiance of the glory of God, three, exact imprint of his nature, that would be the morphe of God, four, five, upholds the universe by the word of his power, number six, purification for sins, and lastly, he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. There is only one ever eternally past, present, and eternally future. Only one who can do all seven of those, and that is Jesus. The response, me, you, all humanity should be this. Every knee should bow and every tongue confess. There is only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. One, and that's Jesus. And as I said a few weeks back, this text right here is telling us it's not a matter of if you will bow the knee, it's when you will bow the knee. You see, when a person comes to Christ in this life, he's bowing the knee, he's yielding himself to the one who died for him. But if we don't do that in this life, we will one day, all humanity, all lost humanity, will bow the knee to this king. For Christians, this is the pattern for joy. As I developed the whole crucifixion, and the resignation of Jesus to die as a criminal. I think the words of D.A. Carson will help capture the full magnitude of what it means for Jesus to die for us. He said there's five perspectives on the humiliation of Christ on the cross. Number one, God's perspective, propitiation for sins. He took the wrath on us, of us, on him. Two, Christ's perspective, he obeyed the Father's will. Satan's perspective, he was defeated as the accuser. Fourth, from sin's perspective, the debt has been paid. And lastly, the believer's perspective, it is the supreme standard of behavior, Philippians 2.5. Let me read Philippians 2.5 once again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, is yours in Christ Jesus. I want to throw out a, a coined word, and I'm not sure when this word was coined, but I like it. Cruciformity. It's a combination of the crucifixion, like we would say transform, cruciformity. It means to have a selfless way of living. Uh, during our break time, when I haven't been doing pulpit supply, we've been attending the First Baptist Church of Cairo. Last Sunday's message was just off the charts. For the Christmas series, the pastor took chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis and explained the problem. And in a nutshell... Adam grasped for what? Equality for, with God. Don't touch that tree. The knowledge of good and evil. And the reason they grabbed for it was the thought that they could be like God. Adam grasped for equality with God. I think that explains in a nutshell what's wrong with the human race. When we don't know the Lord, we're grabbing to be gods, to be rulers, to be authorities, to be the big chief, to be the number one. 
But when we look at Jesus, Jesus did not grasp it. He relinquished the independent use of equality with God. I don't know if Paul ever used the word cruciformity, but he said it in so many words. When he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If he gave himself for me, why can't I give myself for others? It's our pattern for joy. The last stanza of Joy to the World says, He rules the world with truth and grace. And, and we're going to sing those words. We're not changing the words. But I want you in your mind to ask yourself as you sing that last stanza and you hear the words, He rules the world with truth and grace. Does He rule your world with truth and grace? Does He rule my life, my world with truth and grace? Father, we thank you for the vivid description that Paul gave to these Philippians to be humbled and obedient and servants with one another. And I pray that just as in my mind, 49 years ago, I can still see, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. I pray that we will walk away from here today with those words etched in our minds as we serve one another. And as we celebrate the Christmas season, may we realize that the incarnation was just the beginning of the mission. And for the joy set before him, he endured the pain and the humility of the cross for us. So when we sing joy to the world, may that joy be ours as well. In Christ's name I pray, amen.